once again on so-called Thanksgiving Day, United American Indians of New England and our supporters are gathered on this hill to observe a national day of mourning for the indigenous people murdered by settler colonialism and imperialism from Turtle Island to Palestine. Today marks the 54th time we have gathered here to mourn our ancestors, tear down settler mythologies, and speak truth to power. Welcome to Plymouth, Massachusetts. It is November 23rd, 2023, and you're listening to Keisha James open the National Day of Mourning. She's about to tell you more about what that is, but first, let me tell you about her. Keisha James is an enrolled member of the Aquina Wampanoag tribe and a granddaughter of Wamsita Frank James, who founded the National Day of Mourning. Here's Keisha. National Day of Mourning came into existence 53 Thanksgivings ago when my grandfather, an Aquina Wampanoag man named Wamsita Frank James, was invited by the Commonwealth of Massachusetts to speak at a banquet celebrating the 350th anniversary of the arrival of the Pilgrims. The organizers of the banquet no doubt imagined that Wamsutta would sing the praises of the American settler colonial project and thank the pilgrims for bringing civilization to these shores. However, the speech that Wamsutta wrote, which was based on historical fact rather than the sham version of history perpetuated in the Thanksgiving myth, was a far cry from complimentary. In his speech, Wamsutta not only named atrocities committed by the pilgrims, but he also reflected upon the fate of the Wampanoag at the hands of settler invaders. Wamsutta's speech contained a powerful message of Native American pride. Our spirit refuses to die, wrote Wamsutta. Yesterday we walked the woodland paths and sandy trails. Today we must walk the macadam highways and roads. We are uniting. We stand tall and proud, and before too many moons pass, we'll right the wrongs we have allowed to happen to us. When state officials saw an advanced copy of Wamsutta's speech, they refused to allow him to deliver it, saying that the speech was too inflammatory. They told him he could speak only if he were willing to offer false praise of the pilgrims. The organizers even offered to write a speech for him, one which would better fit with their settler narrative. But Wamsutta refused to have words put into his mouth. His suppressed speech was printed in newspapers across the country, and he and other local Native activists began to plan a protest. The flyer for this protest, which was circulated nationwide, read, what do we have to be thankful for? The United American Indians of New England have declared Thanksgiving Day to be a national day of mourning for Native Americans. On the day most U.S. citizens were celebrating Thanksgiving Day, 1970, Keisha said Wamsutta and members of more than 25 tribes gathered at Plymouth Rock. They recognized what became the first National Day of Mourning. Nowadays, a lot of people who grew up in the U.S. were raised with one very specific idea of the history behind the Thanksgiving holiday, but Keisha shed light on the true history of that day. So, why do so many people, Native people, object to the Thanksgiving myth? According to this myth, the pilgrims, seeking religious freedom, landed on Plymouth Rock. The Indians welcomed them with open arms and then conveniently faded into the background and everyone lived happily ever after. The end. Here is the truth. First, 
The pilgrims are glorified and mythologized because the circumstances of the first permanent English colony in North America, Jamestown, were too ugly to hold up as an effective national myth. Pilgrims and Indians are a much more marketable story than settler cannibalism. Second, the pilgrims came here as part of a commercial venture. They didn't need religious freedom. They already had that back in the Netherlands. The Mayflower Compact was merely a group of white men who wanted to ensure they would get a return on their investment. Third, when the pilgrims arrived, on Outer Cape Cod, by the way, not on that pebble down the hill, one of the first things they did was to rob Wampanoag graves at Corn Hill and steal as much of their winter provisions of corn and beans as they were able to carry. Fourth, some Wampanoag ancestors did greet the pilgrims and save them from starvation. And what did we, the indigenous people of this continent, get in return for this kindness? Genocide, the theft of our lands, the destruction of our traditional ways of life, slavery, starvation, and never-ending oppression. So why does any of this matter? It is simple. When people perpetuate the myth of Thanksgiving, they are not only erasing our genocide, but also celebrating it. We did not simply fade into the background as the Thanksgiving myth says. We have survived and flourished. We have persevered. The very fact that you are here is proof that we did not vanish. Our very presence on this land frees the land from the lies of the history books and the myth makers. We will remember and honor all of our ancestors in the struggle who went before us. We will speak truth to power as we have been doing since the first National Day of Mourning in 1970. That first National Day of Mourning was a powerful demonstration of Native unity, and it has continued for all these years as a powerful demonstration of the unity of all people who speak truth to power. You're listening to the Upper Cape Catch by the Enterprise. We bring you news from Sandwich, Mashpee, Bourne, and Falmouth. Last week was what many of us celebrated as Thanksgiving, but as you just heard, that holiday and many other facets of our lives in the world today have a deeper, lesser-known history. Today on the Upper Cape Catch, we're going to try to make those lesser-knowns known and pay close attention to stories that need our attention. Today, we're learning about Aboriginal people's rights and how self-determination connects people around the globe to each other in solidarity. Get a scene from you guys when you approached this event. What what did you see? Do you want to go first, or do you want me to go? Uh, <laughs> or should we introduce ourselves? Oh yeah, yeah uh, actually, <laughs> <laughs> um, we're so good at this. Too. Okay, okay. Can you guys start by introducing yourselves, who you are, and what you do? Uh, I'll start with you, Gilda. All right. Hi, I'm Gilda Geist. I am a news reporter for the Falmouth Enterprise, and I'm also a co-producer on the Upper Cape Catch. And I am Mackenzie Ryan. I am a reporter with the Mashpee Enterprise. Mackenzie and Gilda were able to go to the National Day of Mourning, and I'll let them take us through the event. Basically, if you've never been to Plymouth, which I hadn't, there's like this big hill, and it's overlooking this like huge, kind of oddly Roman-looking architecture surrounding what is known as Plymouth Rock. There's definitely some dispute as to whether that's the original rock that we heard at the event, but there's a lot of people like milling around, like clearly there to visit Plymouth Rock for Thanksgiving, which is kind of interesting then, because we have now all these people gathered at the top of the hill 
hundreds, we could say. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're not sure how many people were there, but it seemed like hundreds. And there was like a little stage set up um, and they were having speakers come up and, you know, share various stories. And there's also a lot of people with signs and banners that said all kinds of things. And I think that's awesome about its location, though, is it's not only historically very significant to the National Day of Mourning, but it's also so prevalent in the Plymouth community. It's a central hub of Plymouth that so many people who may not have known about the event were able to join in and learn about it as well. It was arranged by the United American Indians of New England, and they had several speakers that day. These speakers are who we'd like you to pay close attention to today. To that end, here's Keisha. Today, we continue to have the lowest life expectancy of any group in the U.S., and the death rate for Native women has increased 20% over the last 15 years. In 1970, our suicide and infant mortality rates were the highest in the country. This has not changed. All of us are struggling under the oppression of a capitalist system which forces people to make a bitter choice between heating and eating. And we will continue to gather on this hill until we are free from this oppressive system, until corporations and the US military stop polluting the earth, until we dismantle the brutal apparatus of mass incarceration. We will not stop until the oppression of our LGBTQ siblings is a thing of the past, until unhoused people have homes, until human beings are no longer locked in cages at the U.S. border, despite the fact that no one, no one is illegal on stolen land. It's easy to hear something like stolen land and then fall back on our own preconceived notions of what that might mean. So for the next few minutes, we're going to take a step back and take a deeper look at what this actually means and the connection Native Americans have with Turtle Island, the original name for North America. There is sometimes in non-Native communities a misconception of what land may mean to an Indigenous person, uh, especially from the speakers at the National Day of Mourning. It was evident that there is a spiritual and cultural connection to the land that Native people have in comparison to what maybe I consider my connection to the land as a non-native person. Um, It is not only a physical connection, but an emotional and spiritual one. And there tends to be a misconnection when we talk about land back or the importance of land to native communities. It's important to these tribes that they are able to, you know, take care of the land the way they once did. Um, and they're not always allowed to do that, right? Like in Mashpee, there's a lot of places where Mashpee Wapanog are like, would love to, you know, clean up this water that we know is this problem. Um, but we can't because the state law says, oh, you can only do that if you have this type of permit, da 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 da. For tribes and for tribes like the Mashpee Wampanoag, like that wouldn't really be, that's not part of their culture. Um, and so there's that, that barrier there that prevents them from maintaining and, connecting the land in the way that's so important to them. In October this year, Mashpee Wampanoag tribal members held a panel on the tribe's aboriginal hunting, fishing, and gathering rights. This is the chief of the Mashpee Wampanoag, Earl Mills Jr. You know, in our traditional stories, it's explained how we've learned different aspects of our culture about our, our relationship with the earth by watching other animals. They all had something to teach us. And, and when we consume these things, it's the same as when a hawk is consuming a, a, a bird or a, or, or a fish. All these aspects of our relationships, our dependency upon each other. I mean, 
when when we when we kill an animal, it's not because we like killing. It's it's any more than when a hawk kills a rabbit. It's not because he likes killing rabbits. It's a part of his way of life, and that's what some people have a hard time understanding. They see us out hunting ducks, and and I've heard stories of people will stop and say, "Why don't you just go to stop and shop and get a duck?" And they fail to understand the the whole aspect of that of that understanding of that other relative of ours, that winged relative in, the, in their relationship with our environment and our culture and, and our use of that animal and our spiritual connection to that thing. We could spend our day feeding our family right here, or we could go someplace else and not be with our families to make a living. And so now that quality time that we had with our kids in our place, in our homelands, is lost. We talk about places in, in their stories and there's local names for different parts of town that go back. These are the places where we have always gone, that there's cultural understanding at these places. Not just to go trap a raccoon, but because at that place too there's plants that grow that you know we can keep an eye on when it is time to harvest or how that the, that crop, if you will, of plants that we might use for food or for medicine or for or for material culture like baskets or, or mats or what have you. The, it's the whole interaction of that. It affects us right to our bones. Not only because that's what made our bones strong by consuming these plants or animals there, but it's about that whole continuation of the fabric of, our, of who we are. This is the Tribal Director of Natural Resources, Jason Steeding. Our chief is a, is a gatherer. Um, and, you know, your father, your father, our grandparents were all the same. They were in the woods, they were on the water, and we've been doing this, again, since time immemorial. It's in our blood, it's in our culture. You go to the woods, you harvest, you gather. You go to the water, you fish, you bring home. You feed your families, you feed your community. You gather berries, plants, herbs, whatever, for medicinal purposes to consume. We've been doing it forever. You know, you look at things today and, and, we're, and everyone up here on this panel is telling you the issues that they're having on the water. There's less fish. The water is contaminated. There are, there's no place Really, where are you going to put a garden? The only place you're going to be able to grow a garden is on your private property. Lord knows how big that is. If you're lucky, you got an acre. We're not able to really flex that sovereign muscle of ours anymore because we're just, we just don't have the means anymore. You know, whether it's there's no fish left, whether there's water quality issues, whether we can't get to the water because we're having issues with access. We don't own the land that we once used to, so we can't plant. Um, and you know, that, that, that affects folks in different ways, but it affects a lot of people and it's hurtful. It really is hurtful um, because you do, you do lose part of your cultural identity when you can't do these things like you're used to. Here's Chief Mills Jr. again. You know, oh, what do you, you don't want progress. Well, at what cost? Is it progress or is it just destruction of environment? Together, 
we, we, we shape the future of our communities. You know, we're, we're willing to do our part, but it takes everybody. You know, it takes a community to make a community. You know, it'd be nice if we had a bigger voice. You know, our, our voice has been being heard since, uh, you know, the people came on the boats. But, you know, we're still talking. At the National Day of Mourning, some of those Native American voices were heard. Harriet Prince is who we're going to hear from next. She is from what is known today as British Columbia, and she survived at residential school. Residential schools officially started in the 1800s and ran until the end of the 20th century. The purpose of the schools was to separate First Nation children from their families. Children were deprived of speaking their own language and learning about or practicing their own culture. Many children in the system were abused beyond that, and they went years without seeing their families. The government funded the schools, and the churches ran them. Here's Harriet. I come from a little res called uh, Sagging in Manitoba. <laughs> what I said there was my name, my inner name is Mickinac, meaning turtle. And that's how I move, if you noticed. <laughs> I'm a, my my uh, clan is caribou. I'm Anishinaabe from Manitoba, a residential school survivor of 13 years. I went, I went to three. I went to three residential schools. I was four years old when I was taken away and didn't get out. Till I was 17, I didn't go home all those years, so I was uh, robbed of family love and all, and all that. But I survived. <laughs> my my little sister was three years old, and my my brother was six years old. We went to three. Uh, yes, I mentioned that before. When we got there, we got bathed. We got took our clothes away, cut our hair, and the first three nights they put DDT in our hair. Can you imagine that? And they put it in DDT in our hair and wrapped our hair in turban style, and turban style, and we slept that way for a long time. And I, awful smell with it. Anyway, I got some notes here to remind me. <laughs> yeah, when we went, when we went to uh, put us to bed, we could hear little girls crying. We were lonely, we were scared. We didn't know where we were. I was four years old, my sister was three. And we wondered, when's our mom and dad coming for us? They didn't come, they didn't come till I was 17 years old. I didn't see them till I was 17 years old. I have learned these later in my life, all these, uh, all these, uh, ceremonies and my culture i didn't get to learn all these till i got i met i uh she's harriet smart enough <laughs> anyway i uh, met this elder in my i was 55 years old and that's when i really truly learned my culture started going to sweats and all these ceremonies and and then uh, my spirit woke up so i've been feeding my spirit with the these ceremonies and that's how i survived they didn't get rid of the Indian in me. I'm still here. Thank you. Yeah. 
Now we're going back to the National Day of Mourning with a little bit more perspective, and Keisha James is about to bring our episode into its second half. In 1970, we demanded an end to the Bureau of Indian Affairs. It is still a demand today. Native nations and peoples do not need the federal government to govern ourselves or take care of our own lands. we did in 1970, we mourn the loss of millions of our ancestors and the devastation of the land, water, and air. We condemn all acts of violence and terrorism perpetuated by all governments and against all innocent peoples worldwide. This includes the myriad crimes of the United States government. Since the invasion of Columbus, indigenous people have been terrorized by settler governments. From the colonial period to the 21st century, this has entailed torture, massacres, systemic military occupations, and the forced removals of indigenous peoples from their ancestral homelands. We will not stop until Palestine is free. As you've already heard, there was a lot of emphasis on solidarity at the National Day of Mourning among Aboriginal people around the world. One of those groups has been at the forefront of current events in recent weeks. One of the presenters was Salma Abu Ayash. She spoke to solidarity and empathy between two particular groups of people whose homelands were taken, Native Americans and Palestinians. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be upon you. I call on my ancestors to envelop us here today with their protection and guidance. I call on my father, Ibrahim, a Palestinian ancestor who fought for Palestine all his life, to bless my words as I take on this responsibility of speaking to you today, honoring this day of mourning. Salma shared many of the same dreams for Palestine that we've already heard today from tribe members. I wonder, do we really understand what it means when 15,271 children, women, and men are killed in 40 days? Can you imagine it? Or that 4,150 people are still caught under the rubble of buildings hit by Israeli air and artillery? Look around you. Think of these numbers. I won't recite the staggering numbers of schools, places of worship, hospitals, and civilian buildings destroyed, or the number of journalists targeted, and healthcare workers or teachers killed. I don't think our brains are capable of absorbing these numbers and this carnage anymore. Can you take watching another video of a child being pulled from under the rubble, or a man being lynched by a mob of Israeli soldiers? We are all watching what is happening in Gaza in horror. The world is watching. The world is watching. The world is watching. We, Palestinians, 
Palestinians yearn for a land where Palestinians have self-determination, liberty, sovereignty over our lands, freedom of movement, and free and to be free from the daily pogroms, killings, and incarceration that has been going on for 75 years and more. A land where anyone, whatever your relationship with the creator, or lack thereof it, is welcome to participate in building a nation with equal rights for everyone. Let us remember that indigenous people in our communities made visible what settler colonialism is, why land back is important. You know that our struggles are intertwined, sourced from the same well of revolutionary spirit and determination, from the same history of colonization, and from the determination to be free. will acknowledge you always and hold you in our hearts in gratitude and join you in your struggles even during this dark cloud of carnage because it is one struggle it is our collective liberation and that is our power we Palestinians have all the power we need because you indigenous people everywhere black and brown people the wretched of the earth people of conscience, Jewish people who shed their fears and join this mass of love. <laughs> Working class people and all people who understand their privilege and the wrongs of their ancestors. We have all the power because we choose life for all. Matoi Monroe, co-leader of the United American Indians of New England, is the last speaker we're featuring today. Here she is. My name is Matoe, and I'm co-leader of United American Indians of New England. When I look at Gaza, I see two reflections of all the indigenous people killed in the wave after wave of massacres here in North America, in Congo, in Haiti, in Australia, and Ireland, Puerto Rico, the Philippines, Algeria, people around the world whose only crime has been to exist and resist settler colonialism. And if you believe that land back is necessary here, then you need to understand that land back is also necessary for other colonized peoples of the land. If we, the colonized, suffer in silence, then we are sometimes considered to be suitable objects of settler pity and charity. But we don't want pity. We want freedom and the restoration of our homelands. Because we must, we fight back by living, having children, loving each other, remembering our true history of who we were and who we still are and who we will be. We fight back for our land because that is part of our bodies too. We fight back in any way we can because the alternative is to become extinct on our own homelands, which is the ultimate goal of settler colonialism. So we know what it's like to be considered animals and savages and to endure generations of ongoing genocide. Colonialism tries to dehumanize us, but we never lose our humanity. Today's program was written, hosted, and produced by me, Noelle Annanen. I want to thank Gilda Geist and Mackenzie Ryan, whose reporting and writing made today's episode possible. To learn more about the United American Indians of New England and the National Day of Mourning, 
Follow the links in the description of this episode. The Upper Cape Catch comes out every Friday, just like our newspaper. Check us out on our Facebook page or on our website at capenews.net. You can also find our papers at your favorite local business, and we have an app that is free to download on the App Store and Google Play. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Upper Cape Catch.